0: If you've been around Christchurch for a while, uh, you'll know our general pattern. But maybe f- as a little bit of an explanation to folks, if you're just uh, joining us, we tend to have this pattern. It's not something that we stick to absolutely, but we try to work it in this way. We, we believe that the Bible speaks to us throughout its pages about Jesus, and it takes us on a journey of understanding how God engages with us in this world. Uh, And so what we do each year is we try to look at something from the Old Testament, we try to look at something from the New Testament, and then we want to recognize the times of Easter and the times of Christmas, and then we look at something fairly practical. That's the general journey that we go on, and the purpose for that, the reason that we do that is we believe that it's good for us to understand the whole of the Bible. It's very easy for us to kind of just get focused onto the bits that we enjoy, uh, and by doing what we do, it forces us to confront the bits that are more challenging for us in the age in which we live. We've been working through uh, the journey of God's people. We, Over the past years, we've looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph going into Egypt, life of Moses, and now we look at uh, this man Joshua. I'll say right off the bat, we're taking a journey into a a story now, a, a period in the life of God's people, which is profoundly challenging for 21st century thinkers, particularly Western thinkers. It contains all the stuff which is hugely difficult for us. Ethnic cleansing conflict, battle, killings, all of the stuff that is massively challenging for us. Uh, And I love that the structure that we've put us through by looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it doesn't let me and Ash and whoever else is speaking, it doesn't let us off the hook. (laughs) It forces us to confront stuff like this. I'll tell you now, there's lots inside of me that would love to speak about all of the nice things all the time. And yet we come to this book and we say it's part of God's Word. We've got to deal with it. Now, initially that's like, oof, man. And then I think, now this is really exciting. How does this engage with us today in the way that we think? I think about it culturally, and the thing that I find fascinating is that we continue to have an abiding passion for nation and conquest. The idea of nation and conquest continues in our minds. It's massively important to us. We live in a culture where we have this desperate desire to have a sense of belonging to something, to be a part of something. We have this idea of kind of oneness under a banner. And at the same time, bizarrely and interestingly, we are also fascinated by stories of conflict which lift a mirror up in front of us and ask us to think about the nature of humanity. It's, a stu- it's a, probably one of the, some of you are box set fanatics and some of you are binge watching box set fanatics. One of the runaway successes, which I've not watched. And everybody says, you've got to watch it, you've got to watch it. Uh, Rachel knows that I get kind of halfway through the second series, and I'm fed up. I'm just this is, the, this is kind of the same story every, every episode with a little bit, you know, tweaks around the edge. I get bored. Everybody's saying, you've got to watch Game of Thrones. And some of you will say, what's Game of Thrones? And some of you will say, you've got to watch Game of Thrones, Paul. What is it? Well, from my understanding, it's raising a mirror in front of us and asking, what is it in us that talks about the idea of power and right and wrong and good and evil and battle and conflict? We might not like to do it, and yet we still look at it in trying to understand us as human beings. Game of Thrones would not be successful if it was simply a story, get hold of that, it would not be successful if it was simply a story, it is successful because it continues to ask us, like all great storytelling, it continues to ask us questions about ourselves, power, right and wrong, good and evil, You know, I think that in lots of ways, nation is probably more important than it maybe has been for decades. (laughs) Whether it's Game of Thrones, whether it's Make America Great Again, whether it's the independence of Brexit or the belonging of Europe, They are all questions of belonging, they are all questions of nation, and uncomfortably as we might wish to shun it away, the other reality is that Western societies' voices of power might not be swords and guns anymore, but they are about border control and trade agreements and the exploitation of the world's poor. You see, nation is still around us. Power and authority is still around us. And yet, at the same time, we come to a, 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 a book like this, a book, the book of Joshua, and the reality is that we face really difficult subjects. And so I want to really work through it. Let's have a look at how Joshua opens up. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. Here's the situation. Massed on the border of the river Jordan are God's people. Across on the other side of the Jordan is the land of Canaan populated by people groups. And God is saying, it is now time for you to cross that river and using military conflict to take that land. It's now time. That is the historical context of this book. That is where we are and that's the subject that we have to deal with. I want to think about four things initially that helps us to understand this story in its historical time, that maybe helps us to understand, for the rest of the journey, how it might relate to us. The first is this, we're looking at the humanly impossible progress of a small family that becomes a conquering nation. That's the first thing that we are observing. Against all human odds, let's remind ourselves of the journey. God speaks to a man and says, leave where, you, leave where you're living, take your family with you, because I'm going to com- make you into a great nation. His name was Abraham. And he took his wife, Sarah, and they left. And they were old. And it looked like it was impossible for them to have children. And out of that impossibility becomes children, and the children that they they bear, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that family line becomes progressively a, a slightly bigger body of people, a nomadic tribe of people. That's all they are. They are threatened by famine, and they end up in Egypt. Remarkably, amazingly, if you don't know the story go back and look at the listen to the podcasts on Joseph they end up in Egypt in a remarkable way and they are protected and then they flourish in Egypt when they are oppressed and then they leave Egypt in a way which is humanly impossible what are we seeing we're seeing the impossibility in human terms of the progress that God promised That's the first thing that is really important when we come to this book. We're seeing something which, humanly speaking, shouldn't be able to happen. That this group of people become a body of people who are able to cross the Jordan and even think about entering into that land. Why was that? Because this is all part of the journey of God's people. In human terms, it should be impossible that we are met here this afternoon. There have been so many moments in human history when the Christian faith was so threatened it looked as if it would be snuffed out. The oppression of Rome, the persecution of Rome should have snuffed it out various other moments in human history. The reason that we are here is that because we are part of this story. We are part of the continuity of God's hand on His people which says that in West Yorkshire, in a surprising place, I'm going to place a little group of people who are still going to remember me. It's remarkable. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and this is really important. We need to keep this in our minds as we journey through this book. The culture in which uh, the story of Joshua is written is a culture in which deity and success are absolutely linked in the minds of people. I'll say that with a few more words so that it makes a bit more sense. They lived in a world where the gods were completely in the minds of all people the shaping of life. Listen to what an archaeologist says about the Canaanite people. This is the people uh, in whose land they are about to enter into. Ugaritic, that's the area of the world, Ugaritic mythological tablets describe the activities of the main gods and goddesses of the Canaanite pantheon. So it talks about the Canaanite gods and goddesses, loads of them. Listen to what it says. Although there existed no single state theology, in other words the state didn't have one God, the major gods reflect local concerns about the fertility of the earth, the importance of water, the security against oppressors. In other words, if you were a Canaanite person of the day, and it rained at just the right point for your harvest, you did not look at it in terms of an understanding of the Patterns of weather across the whole of the world in the way that we might understand the patterns of weather. You looked at it as a blessing of your God on you. If you managed to make a good harvest, it was because God, your God, had blessed you. You lived in a world which was completely shaped by how you appeased the gods that you worshipped. If that was the world as it was back then, which is completely different to our world today, it is completely impossible for God to speak outside of that framework, isn't it? God has to speak. If He's going to speak to a world, He has to speak in the language of the world as it was. And the language of the world as it was was quite simply this. If your nation and your land were successful, if you were able to stave off oppressors, if you were able to take the land of the next nation, it was because your God was the real, true, powerful God. (laughs) That's the world that they inhabited. How does God speak into that world? He speaks into that world with a voice which might be really uncomfortable for us today, but it was completely understandable for the people of that day. Let me try and say it like this. We cannot come to the book of Joshua and be so arrogant as to say, God shouldn't speak like that when we come to it with 21st century mindsets and we ignore the mindsets of the ancient world. God has to speak in the way that they understood, as uncomfortable as it might be for us today. Otherwise, God is not heard. Otherwise, God's voice is never heard in the world in which we live. So that's the second thing. The third thing is this. The conquest is located in past promises. (laughs) In the same way that God spoke to Abraham, we also read this. He speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He says this, The fourth generation of your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen... A smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give this land. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, to the land of uh, the Kenites, the Kerazites, the Kamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Raphaites, the Canaanites. I'm making you a promise. You, insignificant man who's walking round the desert, and I'm making you a promise that this land, where you look around and you are fearful of the people groups around you, I'm giving this land to your people, to your nation. That, in human terms, is God saying, for the voice of the day, I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going I'm to speak to nations all around let me just reflect on this for a minute do we believe that i believe that i believe that god speaks to nations if they are willing to listen in ways that are extraordinary i grew up at a time when the soviet union the iron curtain as i think it was it churchill who used first used the phrase the iron curtain where, where the Christian faith was persecuted beyond belief. And it looked as if it was impossible for it to survive. And yet, as that started to lift, what happened? The Christian faith, which had been there all the time, which was growing silently, grew even more. And the same has happened in China And the same has happened in South America. And the same has happened every place where human powers oppress God's people. It rises up and it speaks with a voice to the nations around and it says, God's hand is on these people whether you like it or not. Now it's changed, hasn't it? That There isn't military conflict, which we're going to come to in a minute. But it's this, I'm going to do the impossible. You know the most impossible thing that God can do is change yours and my heart. I can never, never, never in my own strength and by own nature love the God who created me. I need to be changed. But thank God for this. We worship a God who does the impossible. He changes us. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is this. The conquest is rooted in justice. I want you to remember that. The conquest is rooted in justice. Why do you say that? Because God has already spoken earlier on to Moses about what is going on in the Canaanite lands. Listen to this. When you get into that land, God says to Moses, be careful that you don't worship the gods that they worship. Because if you do, Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 29, the Lord your God will will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. That's what God is going to do. Don't you do the same. He's going to cut them off. But when you've driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. He's saying this. You're going to go into this land. You're going to take captive this land. When you take captive this land, don't think about the gods that they used to worship. And decide, let's have a go at that. Why? Why did God say that? It's this. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of things... Detestable, which the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. (laughs) We are so ridiculously 21st century sensitive... And yet the reality was, back in Canaan, one of the ways in which the gods were worshipped, his little children, were thrown into bonfires as sacrifices. And we look around our world and we say there is injustice going on at a horrific level in some countries. And we sit on that balance... Of when the nations, when the United Nations or other, some other justice-seeking body, they're on that constant knife edge of when do we intervene and bring justice? When do we intervene and change things? And God is saying, one of the reasons that you are going to be my voice is because what's going on in there is horrific, it's awful, it's terrible, it is unjust, <laughs> Do you get that? What is that saying about this conquest? It's saying this in simple terms, God's people were designed to be the voice of the justice of God. <laughs> How do we know that? Look at verse 1, 7 to 7-8 of Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. God is saying, right, when you go into there, don't go in in your own strength. Don't think that you're going to go and bring your justice. Don't go and think that you're going to bring the imprint of what you think is right and what you think is wrong. You keep my law not just in your head, have it written deep down inside of you so that every part of you, every decision that you make, every attitude that you have is shaped by the good law that I have just given you. Do you see that? You see, when they go into that land, what they're doing is they are taking the good justice of God David Wells described it like this, the God-calming of human history. I think that is a brilliant term, that human history is filled with oppression and savagery and brutality. What changes it? According to what Joshua is called to do, bringing in the justice of God, the soothing, the calming. It's just way too big a journey this afternoon, but we're going to cover it over these next few weeks. Of seeing how what God introduced to these people was little shifts, little pushes, so that the world becomes a gentler place than it was when the Canaanites ruled the roost. At least what stops is the horror of child sacrifice. The horror of throwing infants into bonfires. Why does that stop? Because God says that is horrific and live a different law. So that's the historical context of why we can come to this and we need to read it with our ancient mindset initially, but there is something else. This conquest is only a temporary thing because there is a better conquest in sight. So on the one hand, we're coming to Joshua and we're saying, let's go back and see what is promised to Abraham. God's doing it. But we're also saying, don't stay in Joshua. Let's look forward. Let's look what was in sight. Let me read you a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, where it says this, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, he believed and he trusted God. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. As did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. See, Abraham went into this and he said, I'm going to go and live there because I'm going to trust the God who has spoken to me, but I know that it can't be in my own strength. that It's God who's going to build something. And you know what? The conquest of Joshua and the land of Canaan is never good enough. It's never enough. It had to speak in that day back then in the way that it did. But it's pointing to a better conquest. It's pointing to a better kingdom. A kingdom which is built not by military power, but by the gentleness of a new kingdom bringer. No less than Jesus. Do you get that? Because what what is happening is God is saying... I understand that in the mindset in which you live, you think kingdom is all about stone walls and power and cities and protection and conflict and law and governance and rule and power. I understand. And therefore, I'm going to take you on a journey where you start to trust in me and you see that I'm going to place a kingdom in impossible human terms, but that's only a temporary kingdom because there is a new kingdom. There is a kingdom which I am preparing you for. And it's Jesus. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. That's the first thing he says. He says, You are still thinking about the idea of kingdom in military conflict terms. Stop thinking about that. It's not about that. So, when we come to this book and we say, This is all about military conflict, it must not stop for us when we think simply about physical things. It's got to become something which is not observed. It's a new conflict, it's a new kingdom. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus goes into, in a sense, hostile territory just like Joshua over these coming weeks goes into hostile territory. And he goes in and he says, Joshua says, we're going to create a new kingdom with justice and you're going to see it. (laughs) And the new Joshua, Jesus, comes in and he says, we're going to create a new kingdom and you're not going to see it. And they say, well, how do we not see a kingdom? How how can a kingdom exist if you can't see it? He says, because the kingdom is right in your midst. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the kingdom. I'm the kingdom. All of that stuff that went before, about justice on a temporary basis, it's fulfilled in me. Because I bring justice on an eternal basis. I'm the one who brings an end to military conflict. That's why the Crusades were an anathema to the idea of the message of the Gospel of Jesus. That's why any military or government power through the church is abhorrent. Because it comes in the peace of Jesus where we say, I'm part of that kingdom. And the justice of Jesus becomes the justice that the new kingdom carries. I'm so excited about the journey that we're going to go on with Joshua. And I think it is so pertinent for the day in which we live where nation is going to be talked about over the next few weeks and months as much as it ever has been. And I want to encourage every one of us to say this during these next weeks and months. My kingdom is not shaped by a union flag or a circle of stars or anything else. It is shaped by the fact that I believe in the justice of the kingdom of Jesus, and I live under His rule. What does that mean? It means that I can live under the rule, the temporary rule, of whatever happens over these next few weeks. Because the justice of the kingdom that I live is never offensive to any kingdom that exists. So let's live the kingdom of Jesus over the coming weeks through the book of Joshua.